Dr. Taras Cruzio is a British academic and professor of political science at the National University of Kiev Mikhail Academy and an expert on politics, crime and security in Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia. Taras is of Ukrainian descent and received a BA in economics from the University of Sussex, an MA in Soviet studies from the University of London, and holds a doctorate in political science from the University of Birmingham. He was a postdoctoral fellow at Yale University. His most recent book is Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War 2022. This was published prior to the full-scale invasion. Uh, and this follows on from two other books on Russian-Ukraine relations. Uh, in total, he's the author uh, and editor of 16 books. We will put some sort of links and mentions in the description of this video uh, because they are, I would say, essential reading to understand the conflict that is unfolding. He is an associate research fellow at the UK Henry Jackson Society think tank and has contributed to the Atlantic Council, Foreign Affairs, Kiev Post, New Eastern Europe, and E-International Relations. I could mention many, many more things here, but we should probably dive into the interview. So welcome to Silicon Curtain. Uh, please do subscribe to the channel um, and uh, do check out uh, the previous video that we did with Taras uh, at the start of the year. Taras, welcome back. Thank you very much for inviting me. Let's jump straight in with the difficult questions, I think. Is it now clear that we are placing limits on the scale and severity of Russia's defeat and thereby placing a limit on the scale and rapidity of Ukraine's victory? Yes, um, to all, um, in answer to all those questions, um, it is extremely ironic that the kind of East European a Ukrainian um, viewpoint, which was always derided by supposedly more better informed, more diplomatic West Western Europeans and Americans, is actually uh, being seen to be correct vis-a-vis -vis dealing with Russia. Um, my, my report um, was written just before the brutal Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, but it but the actual attack just reinforced the main arguments of the think tank paper, which are that um, whether we like it or not, and it seems that in, for many in the West, this is not something they really want to wake up to. Um, the West is faced with a war against it by what many of us have called an anti-Western axis of evil. Now I've been tweeting for at least a year since uh, Iran and Russia cemented their military relationship um, in the summer of last year, that Israeli intelligence must have been on extended vacation, not to figure out that sooner or later this is going to come back and bite them in, in a part of their body, which is not very pleasant. Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch in those kinds of military relationships. Um, and the, the two crucial things that unite Iran and Russia are that both countries want another country to be erased from the map. In the case of Russia, that's Ukraine. In the case of Iran, that's Israel. And the, the war that they are fighting together with North Korea and with not military at the moment, but at least diplomatic Chinese backing um, is that um, is, is being fought on the territories of two states, Israel and Ukraine, 
which were regarded by members of that anti-Western axis of evil as interlopers, as US puppet states, as states that shouldn't exist, um, and that therefore should be destroyed in the case of Ukraine by Russia, in the case of Israel by Iran. Um, what we've had until now is a kind of a middle, middle ground um, policy of, of particularly what I would call the dubs led by the Biden administration, which has been dithering. It's been, it's been giving military assistance to Ukraine on a drip drip basis. You know, the, the, the joke was the Ukrainians would ask the Americans for something and they go, no way. A month later, they would ask again and they go, okay, maybe we'll think about it. And then three months all down the road, they go, okay, we'll give it to you. Why not just give it straight away? Um, and if you have, if, if you can think of three Western positions, you know, uh, pressuring the Ukrainians to negotiate sort of land for peace, I mean, terrible one, but that's one position. The middle position of the Biden administration, which is this drip, drip, let's see what Russia does and then we'll give you something else. And then the third one is just give them everything we've got and let them win the war as quickly as possible and defeat Russia. Well, I think in my paper argues is the third one, give Ukrainians everything they need. So everything in the military arsenal of the West, except of course, for nuclear, biological, chemical, everything else, give them, and let's finish this war as quickly as possible. But that would require the doves, particularly the Biden administration, the Germans, um, to openly come out and say, we not only want Ukraine not to be defeated, they all say that, but they should also say, we want Russia to be militarily defeated. And they've never said that. Um, it's only the British, the four Scandinavian countries, three Baltic states, Poland, and the Czech Republic, who have openly come out and said, yes, we support Ukraine's military victory, and we also support Russia's military defeat. The Americans, Germans, and the French have not said that. And I think that is a mistake because the Republicans have a point here in the US. They're saying, well, what's the end goal? What's the goal of this policy? If you don't want Russia's military defeat, what do you actually want? Um, if it's just sort of to give Ukrainians enough so they're not defeated and then to force Putin to the negotiating table, well, that's not really a policy. Um, and because how do we know Putin ever wants to go to the, to, to the negotiating table? Um, he's never walked back from his original goal um, of early 2002, that he wants to subjugate the whole of Ukraine. He's never said, we've moved back from that. He still has that, that, that. And I think that if Putin said he's up for talks, which a big chunk of the Russian public would support, um, but, but I don't think the people around him would be very happy about that. So he's got to look, watch his back. That's why he always sits at these very long tables, him at one end and the people at the other. You never know who's got a dagger in their pocket. Um, and um, and so I'm not sure that this is the, the, the Biden administration policy has worked. And hence the paper was also arguing um, the reason why this offensive won't finish this year, why it will drag on till next year and who knows when it will finish is because of this dithering um, support for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, that leads in turn to higher Ukrainian civilian and military casualties. And it leads to more destruction of Ukraine because Russia just keeps getting more stuff from Iran and North Korea um, and just keeps attacking uh, as opposed to being militarily defeated.
Isn't this a, an extraordinary failure to perhaps heed the voices that understand Russia best? Um, there are people like you, there are people like uh, Keir Giles, Ben Hodges and others who almost from day one of this full-scale conflict have said that Putin is an escalation machine. There will be no point at which he will come to the negotiating table with a, uh, a reasonable set of proposals and at no point has he done so or shown indication that that, uh, that will be happening. Um, why this failure to heed those voices that have been saying all along that this is where it's going to end up uh, in a highly attritional war? Well, I think the Biden administration has, has, a, uh, has a history, has baggage. Um, um, it, no, no, no political leaders operate in a vacuum and their baggage is that uh, Biden was the vice president of Barack Obama and Obama's presidency was it was a disaster when it comes to foreign policy and uh, let's remember how after Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 Barack Obama Biden then Hillary Clinton Secretary of State they called for a reset of relations with Russia a year after Russia invaded and de facto annexed two Georgian territories, south of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Um, the reset failed, as they always will fail with Russia, because Russia or the Kremlin understands reset as you reset, we've done nothing wrong. So that kind of reset will never work. Um, a reset only works if both sides say, okay, we both screwed up, let's, you know, let's kiss and hug and we'll, 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 we'll restart, but Russia will never do that. So every reset, you know, under George Bush, under Barack Obama, under Trump, it's not gonna work. Um, so Georgia, 2008, and then 2014 was a, was a joke of a Western response to what was the worst territorial infringement in Europe since 1945, invasion of Ukraine in the, in the East. Um, and what did Russia get? A slap on the wrist, um, and only after, MH17, the civilian airliner, was shot down in July of 2014. So uh, Russia was getting away with all of this. The Biden administration uh, came into power with that baggage. <clears throat> and um, you see two legacies of that. When Biden's elected, he, he abolishes the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 that Donald Trump imposed. Um, and, and he also, just a few months ago, the Biden administration was opposed to Ukraine joining NATO, um, even though now you have actually one of the highest numbers of countries ever that actually support Ukraine joining NATO, including even France under Macron. Um, so uh, when Ukrainians from Kiev look at, look at these American leaders, they say, well, he might be a Democrat. Uh, Obama and Biden, but they're nothing like Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was far more hawkish on these foreign policy questions, and he was far more supportive of Ukraine. So, you know, it's not even a, a political party issue. It's often within parties. It depends on, on the personalities. Um, but also, um, you know, a lot of us are, are not very big fans of Donald Trump, but let's be quite honest about politics here. Obama vetoed weapons to Ukraine. Trump did not veto them. Trump imposed sanctions on Nord Stream 2. So yes, we know what Trump's like. Let's, let's not go into that. But from a Ukrainian point of view, 
thank God that Trump sent, or the US under Trump sent some weapons to Ukraine because those weapons like the Stingers, the Javelins and what the British sent, the Enlaws, were crucial at the beginning of the invasion to stop those um, uh, columns uh, attacking and taking over Kiev. So um, the Biden administration comes from that background of, I would say, quite dovish um, wing of the Democratic Party. And they've, they've played into Russia's hands with you know, Russian threats of using this nuclear, nuclear war tactics, um, which thankfully no longer are being used by Russia. One reason being the Chinese have pressured Russia to, to tone down the nuclear saber rattling. Um, and also, and, and, and it was always exaggerated, um, military experts in the West like Lawrence Frieden would always say, it would actually confer no military advantages on Russia if they use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. And you don't know where the radiation cloud's gonna go anyway. So a lot of Russian soldiers would die and potentially that cloud could go into Russia, not north into Ukraine. So, and then the second argument which was always made was better the devil we know than the devil we don't. So, you know, somebody could be even worse than Putin who would come to power after him. Well, that's pretty easy to answer um, because I don't think anybody can be worse than Putin. Um, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, he's indicted by the International Criminal Court. I mean, every type of war criminal you can think of has been undertaken by Russia under his leadership in Ukraine, every type. So the idea that somebody could be worse is I think a misnomer. One of these sort of canards from, it was always the, 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 the way that Russia used figures like Vladimir Zhirinovsky, this fake sort of Russian nationalist, who was always under the control of the regime, but he would be the buffoon that they'd bring out. If you don't support us, this idiot's gonna to come to power. And, and so I think that's a canard. And if you look at Russian history, actually, when Russia's been militarily defeated, whether it's the Crimean War in the 19th century, Russo-Japanese, 1905, World War I, 1917, it's always de uh, reformers and moderates that come to power after, after Russia's military defeat. So it's not for certain that some crazy nutcase is going to come, come, come to power if Putin's gone. But certainly these... Um, this wing of Western Russianists, like the ones you mentioned, like you, Giles from, from Chatham House, they understood how Putin operates. And Putin, Putin doesn't do Brexits. Putin doesn't do um, negotiations um, for some kind of nice diplomatic deal. And as we know from Prigozhin's fate, the leader of Wagner, you don't do a deal with Putin because it never sticks um he's gonna break it so i mean they were all they were always right but um there's also another wing of um i would say russianists in the west who are just dying to get back to what they regard as normal state of affairs where you know russia works with us to deal with international problems i thought i always thought that was a complete joke um but but they they exist and they're the ones pushing for um for kind of, you know, some kind of negotiated deal, let's stop the bloodshed. Um, and then you've got the, I would call them <clears throat> the, the, the far left, if you want to call it, the, the Jeremy Corbynites of the Western world, who in 2014 were openly, brazenly openly, 
pro-Russian, blaming the whole crisis in 2014 on the West, on the US, NATO. Um, today, they can't be as openly pro-Russian for obvious reasons. It's an illegal invasion, massive war crimes, Putin's indicted by the ICC. So they have to camouflage their pro-Russianism by saying, we're peaceniks, we're for peace. We, we want to end bloodshed. Let's do, you know, let's end this terrible carnage and bloodshed and do a deal, territory for peace. Ukraine gives us some territory and the war's over. So that's how they camouflage their, their pro-Kremlin position. But as we know, all that from 2014, Ukraine did that exact same thing, territory for peace. And look what happened uh, eight years later. There was an invasion. So um, so nobody's going to be fooled, including Zelensky, who's no by no means a hawk. His nature, by nature, he's a centrist liberal. Um, he's not a, a far right uh, person. Um, so um, I think the, there are many factors here that, that come in. But... Um, but when we look at U.S. politics, we have to look at it's not just a Democrat-Republican conflict. There are different strands within both parties, including the Democrats. And uh, there are so many angles we could go here, but I'd like to unpack a little bit more about this incrementalism, because those who are critics of Joe Biden, and they are, of course, legion, especially uh, towards the sort of, uh, you know, the right, extreme right and so on, uh, and, and even uh, in many in the center, they could characterize it simply as not having a strategy, simply as, uh, you know, Sleepy Joe not knowing, you know, what time of day it is. I suspect uh, that um, there's far more to it than that. And I think you've hit upon something that's interesting there, which is that not only are they dovish, but also cannot imagine a world in which Russia is not a great power that it's not one of those big chess pieces on the board, um, a worthy adversary, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think they are pulling their punches, um, not only to preserve Russia as a great power, but also to preserve it as a future trading partner, or simply because they do not have the imagination to imagine that empires fail, empires fall, and that scenario may actually be the interests of the people who inhabit that territory uh, you know it may not be in their interest to carry on being part of it yeah i mean it's um depends on which country we're talking about and then if it's the just the americans i don't think trade's a big factor because there's very little actual trade between the us and russia if it's germany then definitely the economic factor you know the so-called putin understanders were very much uh, the, the both ideologically linked to Russia, but also interested in a, a German-Russian e economic and energy connection. So I think it depends on the countries. In the, ca in the case of these um, Western Russianists, I think it is partly this imagination question. They've so got used to this world where Russia is both a competitor and somehow works together with the West on on nuclear weapons, on on chemical weapons, on on all, all sorts of global issues, I always thought it was fanciful because I could never get them to say to me, "Where was Russia actually positive in in working with you on some of these questions?" Tell me one one area. Um, it's also some of them are, are fanciful because they uh, think that you know we need to do some deals or as the, some Americans call it, part China. 
sorry, park Russia, and then we can focus on China. Um, so there's, I think there's a mixture of, the, of, these, of these factors, um, but certainly the idea that somehow um, we need to realize that Russia's not going away, Russia's going to be always a great power. And you do get uh, various articles by senior people like the Council on Foreign Relations in the US who say, whether we like it or not, after the war ends, Russia's going to be there. So we need to work out how to deal with Russia. What they, I don't think, want to intellectually take into account is that prior to this uh, brutal invasion, uh, Russia was a declining great power. And this, what this invasion has done is made Russia's decline even faster. And you can certainly see that within Eurasia. I mean, the only country of the 15, of the 14 non-Russian republics of the Soviet Union um, only one of them, Belarus, supports Russia at the UN now. Um, other countries, which are kind of in the pro-Russian camp, whether it's Armenia or, or Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan, they're, they're part of the pro-Russian economic sphere, um, but they abstain from the UN. They don't support Russia. So Russia's lost support in its own backyard, and you can see that in the South Caucasus, where uh, Russia not, was not able to restrain Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan used Russia's weakness to capture the last bit of its territory still under Armenian control, Karabakh. So, and the biggest example of Russia declining and why I think these Western Russianists who, who don't want to see this is the relationship between Russia and China. Um, if you uh, talk to people who are good at recognizing body language, you can certainly see that when Putin and the Chinese leader get together, Putin is the younger brother. I mean, this is obvious. It's 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 Tony Soprano with his with his henchmen. I mean, that's what it looks like. Um, and and so uh, whether you like it or not, this invasion. Um, needs to make you realize that the world has changed. And the, what, what it means, it means it's brought about the replacement of, of, of Russia by China far quicker than was intended, maybe, what was supposed to happen. But China is far more the ascend, rising power. Russia is a declining power. Um, and and that's, I think, one of the main reasons why China is very cautious on this uh, on, the, on this conflict. Yes, it's giving diplomatic support um, to to Iran and uh, to Russia um, and and promoting anti-Western um, rhetoric in the developing world. But it's not it hasn't jumped in wholeheartedly with military support, unlike Iran and North Korea, um, because the Chinese are patient. Uh, the Chinese know or think, um, well, the world's our oyster in a few years' time. What's the rush? Um, whereas Putin and Iranian leaders, they're angry. They're angry, impatient. Um, Putin for a long, very long time, should have been going to anger management classes. I mean, he's he's really, really angry. And even as something, I think it really 
bedevils us in the West to even understand this. Putin's still angry about the collapse of the Soviet Union, which took place a long time ago. Um, he's still angry about it. Um, he still blames the West. Um, so that you have a kind of a different mix of countries. The Chinese are kind of waiting on the sidelines and going, yeah, carry on, guys. This is great for me, but you know, I'll, 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 I'll be around um, later. Um, but whether we like it or not, um, and the Hamas attack on on Israel has, has shown that to be the case, uh, we we are facing in the West this anti-Western axis of evil: Russia, Iran, and North Korea, uh, and they. Uh, they want to destroy this Western world that was created after 1945, what they call a US-led uni unipolar world, replace it with what they call a multipolar world. And nobody has any idea how to define that. But it's obviously a world run by non-democracies. Um, and in the process, wipe off the face of the map, Ukraine and Israel. Um, so. And potentially think, Taiwan as well, I guess. Yeah, if you yeah. Want to bring well, that Taiwan into it, yeah. would be would be certainly the um, Taiwan has benefited from Ukraine putting up a fight because if, as envisaged by these Western Russianists, that Ukraine would have been militarily defeated very quickly because it wasn't just the Russians who believed that; it was most Western policymakers and so-called experts also believed that. If that had happened then Taiwan would already now be fighting China or be part of China. Um, so the Chinese have, have taken what's happened, particularly the Western response, um, and, and said, okay, we have time. There's no rush. Um, um, but I think the key, one of the key factors here is this dithering kind of softly, softly approach, dovish position. The one that was always very arrogant and looking down upon the hawks and the 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 ones who called for a tougher position, the, the Balt, the Baltic states, Poland, um, some of the Scandinavians, myself, um, they have been proven to be wrong because their their approach dominated Western policy to Russia from the two thousands up to the invasion. And Russia made two miscalculations when it invaded in 2002. The first was obviously about the Ukrainians. They, they assumed these were all little Russians who were gonna greet them with bread and salt. They weren't, they were greeted with stingers, javelins and enlots. That's one miscalculation. But the other miscalculation was they expected the West would do nothing. And the reason they expected the West would just give them a not one slap on the wrist like in 2014, but two slaps on the wrist um, was because of past Western uh, policies. And um, I mean, it, if, you're, if you're sitting in the Kremlin and, and you're looking at what the West did in 2008, after the invasion of Georgia, there were no Western sanctions. After the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, there were very mild sanctions. Um, not the kind of sanctions we're talking about today, like are against Iran and Russia. Very mild and moderate sanctions. So if you're sat in the Kremlin, you're thinking, well, I'll launch a very quick surgical strategic military operation. Ukraine will collapse in a few days. 
The West will, will slap me on the wrist twice maybe this time, but it'll all be over quickly and nothing will happen. That's what they thought. They miscalculated um, because the Ukrainian perseverance, the Ukrainian resilience, coupled with the stronger Western response, maybe not as strong as we all thought, but a stronger Western response led to this bigger crisis and then to the expansion of the crisis uh, by in Russia having to look elsewhere. Russia, the so-called great power, with the so-called second best army in the world, having to go with a begging ball for weapons to North Korea and Iran. So uh, yeah. uh, I think that there's no question that these these Western Russianists were wrong then and they're wrong now. Not all of them, as, you, as we've said, but there are many of them. And the, uh, you know, what's going on in the Middle East shines uh, an interesting spotlight. And the pogrom in Dagestan. Uh, and then you go back and you look at Lavrov's speeches, you look at Putin's speeches, and ostensibly Russia is not an anti-Semitic state by state policy. You would have had previously, um, you know, the uh, uh, chief rabbi of Moscow sitting down in the Kremlin, blah, blah, blah. You've had the, the superficial uh, signs that Russia is not an anti-Semitic state. Can we now perhaps read into some of this miscalculation. Um, I mean, they thought that the Kiev regime was a puppet of the West. They thought that it was misaligned with their own people and that nobody in Ukraine would come to support of their government. They probably were projecting what they understood their own population's reaction would be uh, if someone tried to depose them. And then we see the utter contempt of the Russian population um, even memes and humor when uh, you know Rublovka and the, the posh areas of Moscow are hit by drones, when Prigozhin is marching on Moscow, nobody cares because when it comes down to it, their leaders, they understand are parasitic. They understand that their leaders are thieves and, you know, it's either this set of thieves or another. It doesn't really matter. They were perhaps assuming that Ukrainians do the same. Is there also a more invidious perhaps assumption and that is that they may have viewed the kiev regime as a jewish cabal uh, imposed upon ukrainians and they also perhaps thought that that's why it would be so easy to sweep it to one side um these are all uh, absolutely great points and um it's surprising though how many even including friends of mine say when do they really believe this stuff in Moscow? Um, I mean, come on, come on. This is nutcase stuff. But yes, they do. Um, there's simply no way. I mean, I, I, I've been collecting this kind of disinformation coming out of the Kremlin for years, and I have, have, a, have a huge amount of it in my Dropbox files and folders. So they do believe it. Um, and they certainly do believe that in 2014, there was a, a so-called CIA or EU Western-backed coup d'etat that threw out this pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych. These fascist Nazis came to power um, who turned Ukraine into a, a US Western puppet state. Um, and they, these Ukrainian Nazis from probably the West of the country uh, ruled the country together with Jewish oligarchs. Um, and the most famous of these was Igor Kolomoisky, who, who funded volunteer battalions in 2014. 
So they certainly saw this. Now, what are the roots of this? This is where it becomes actually very interesting. The roots of this are in Soviet anti-Zionist propaganda, um, which was very heavy in the last two to three decades of the Soviet Union. It kind of ended with Gorbachev in the mid eighties. But prior to that, so the period of time that Vladimir Putin is socializing into the Soviet system and joining the KGB, which is the period he loves the best, the Brezhnev era. So the 60s, 80s, it's the Brezhnev era first, then Andropov, the former head of the KGB, runs Russia for a year until he croaks. Um, so that period of time is where you have this anti-Zionism. And anti-Zionism anti -Zionism, a la the Soviet Union was just camouflage anti-Semitism. If you look at the cartoons, you know, all the all the all the the Jewish hate figures all have big noses. They all have, you know, Jewish sort of the kind of the stereotypical features you have in anti-Semitic pictures and, and art. And they were they talked about this Zionist Ukrainian Nazi collaboration against the Soviet Union. That's what they talked about then. The the other irony of this is that this has uh, impacted upon the far left in, in the West. The anti-Zionism that you had in the Corbynite wing of the Labour Party and in France and, and elsewhere and the far left there, this comes from the Soviet Union, from that Soviet legacy, um, where it's very blurry, the, the differences between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. And we see this with the protests on, on the pro-Palestinian protests on many of the student campuses and elsewhere. These are as, as much pro-Palestinian as they are anti-Semitic um, when, you, when you talk to these, to these students. So that kind of ideological background and the roots of this, of this so-called Zionist uh, Nazi kind of collusion against the Soviet Union and now against Russia still is very much dominant in this Russian disinformation propaganda. You can see this with Lavrov's comments where he's asked, um, how can you still call Ukraine a state run by Nazis when you have a Jewish president? And he says, well, well, in the 1930s, the Zionists collaborated with the Nazis. I mean, he said this. Um, a the former mayor of London got into deep trouble for saying exactly the same thing. Um, it became a big scandal in the Labour Party. So this is, this is you can see where all these kind of things come from, and um, that and that um, has continued. I mean, the attacks against Zelensky are are anti-Semitic. Um, he's been described by he's described by Russia as just a puppet, not only of the US, but a puppet of Nazis who are running Ukraine. That's how, that's how he's described. Um, I mean, it, it's both um, drawing on this Soviet anti-Semitic, anti anti-Zionist legacy, but it's, of course, it's also drawing on the fact that uh, you have very arrogant chauvinist imperialists in Moscow who, who don't respect the sovereignty of any of the countries that emerge um, on who are their neighbors from the Soviet Union. I mean, this has been a problem that goes back before Putin. Even in the 90s, uh, there was no respect. They didn't treat these other countries like Ukraine, Belarus, the Caucasus, Central Asia. They didn't treat them as so really sovereign countries. 
And Zelensky, um, who was he? The way that the way that this special military operation was envisaged was that it was going to be very, very successful quickly because Zelensky was just this Jewish puppet um, of of Jewish oligarchs and Ukrainian Nazis and the CIA. He would run with his bags of money straight away as soon as the Russians entered Kiev. Um, it would be a, it would be a walking. You know, we'd have no no. Um, we have no kind of opposition to us. Uh, the the Ukrainians would be would be would be shouting from the rooftops, "Thank you for liberating us from this cabal of Jew, Jewish oligarchs and Nazis funded by the West." And that's the the picture. At the same time, they can't change their their disinformation propaganda campaign. They can't suddenly. Because Zelensky replaces Petro Poroshenko as Ukrainian president, they can't suddenly say, oops, Ukraine's not run by Nazis anymore because we've got a Jewish president. So they've got to continue the same line. And the only way they can continue the same line is by drawing and digging into this Soviet legacy of anti-Zionism. And that's what they've done. And Putin, it's not just Lavrov, Putin's come out with some very anti-Semitic remarks about Zelensky, you know, that he's not a real Jew, he's just a fake. Um, you know, he, he, his family did not suffer in the Holocaust, and this, that, and the other. Um, they have to sort of come up with these various excuses, um, particularly now that, as you as you mentioned, um, one of the big contrasts between Ukraine and Russia is that um, when the Russians invaded back in February 2022, Zelensky didn't run from Kiev; he stayed put. He, he refused a, a free ride out of Kiev by, that the Americans were offering. When, when Prigozhin um, launched um, an, an attack on um, a potential coup attempt and was driving up the motorway up to Moscow, Putin fled from Moscow. Um, and nobody came to, to help Putin. Um, the Ukraine, Russian security forces, the, the commanders, for some reason, all checked into clinics. <laughs> they they wanted to wait. Who's going to win in this battle? And then they'll jump on the side of the, the side that wins. It was the same thing that happened in August 91, by the way, where the Russian military and security forces waited to see who was going to win, and then they would join that side. And it's I mean, extraordinary but, miscalculation, isn't it, by Prigozhin? I mean, you would have thought Prigozhin would understand the mindset that you know you're either all in or or you're dead, and obviously it ended up with the latter. I think with Prigozhin, it's a question of like many of these um, very wealthy people. We have them in the West as well, um, who just become extremely arrogant and extremely. Um, over self self confident. You're absolutely right that the idea that um, it was very foolish that Prigozhin would assume that Putin would stick to any deal that he did with him. Um, but the only way you can explain that is by pure arrogance um, yeah. on, on Prigozhin's on Prigozhin's side. Um, this was too much of an embarrassment for Putin to let go, um, and it was an embarrassment because he fled. Um, he didn't stay. Um, he was nowhere to be seen, and, and his security forces did not rush to help him, did not stop them advancing. They only stopped advancing because Brugosian couldn't believe how easy it was to get to Moscow. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think that, so for something like that, Putin acts like a mafia don. He's, he needs to 
show that he's back in charge and he'll do that by killing uh, mm. Yeah, An extraordinary set of events in which history could have pivoted, but unfortunately the war uh, continued. Now, you mentioned here a number of things, and, and, and including in that is weaponized narratives around Zionism, but there are many, many others. Now, here's the other area of dissonance. I think many across uh, you know, Berlin, Paris, Washington, still see Russia as a global power and still see it in some ways as more of a functioning state, which ironically it was in that British era that you described. You know, there was more balance of power between party and FSB than there is now. The mafia elements were really the sort of grease in the machine rather than the entire machine. What is Russia becoming now? And is our strategy aligned to it? And in particular, I mean that Russia has been characterized as promoting, <clears throat> excuse me, um, global disorder. And in some ways is opening a Pandora's box, uh, both in the Middle East, but also with Wagner in Africa, the sort of terrible chaos in Syria that Russia is behind. Um, is Russia more of a terroristic actor? And how does it benefit from the ensuing chaos and disorder that it seems to be promoting? Well, I think there's simply no question that today Russia is an agent of chaos. I mean, that that is the whole ethos and, 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 and kind of understanding of what is hybrid warfare, um, that Russia just throws everything into the pot, undertakes a whole range of different activities, assassinations, election interference, cyber warfare, hacking, um, you name it, um, sending Wagner to Africa. I mean, Wagner um, has um, offered to help or is, is off or is sending some equipment to Hamas. It was reported yesterday. Um, so I, Russia's goal to destroy the US, so-called US-led unipolar world is by sowing a world of chaos. Yes, it's, Russia is not an agent of stability. Um, by seeking to destroy the setup in the world <laughs> that's been around since 1945, you are, and by virtue of that, an agent of chaos. And um, especially when we look at the global crisis that's resulted from this invasion. The world was just, just coming out of the crisis of, of coronavirus and COVID-19, um, just beginning to get back on its feet. The economies were just beginning to recover. And then we have this new crisis and, it, and, and the Russian invasion has led to a massive decline in, in global productivity and output um, and, 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 and led to all sorts of different problems, including um, starvation in Africa because they haven't been able to get grain from, from Ukraine, which has been blocked by Russia. So there's simply no question. Anybody who thinks that Russia could somehow return after this war to becoming an agent of, 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 of stability and order is simply deluding themselves. Um, because these are not, this is not the way these people think who are in power in Moscow. They are angry about the, the USSR disintegrating, about how Russia was allegedly badly treated by the West, and therefore they're going to destroy this Western, what they see as a, a Western-led world, and they're going to destroy it in any way that they can. 
including if they have to working with Iran and its uh, its various proxy forces. Is our strategy, therefore, could you characterize it as one of containment? And given that this malign Russian influence is like a kind of toxic gas seeping out of every pore, isn't this containment strategy doomed to fail? Shouldn't we actually be pivoting and looking more at a, call it more intrusive or transformational strategy, seeking systemic change in Russia rather than simply maintaining a dangerous status quo? Well, I think I think you could probably define if we if we're in my paper I'm, I'm splitting the countries up between hawks and doves. I would say that the countries which are more hawkish, like uh, United Kingdom, um, they would be more in favour of 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 containment and taking the war, as it were, to Russia. But I I wouldn't say that the the U.S., Germany, and France. Have even reached the level of supporting containment. Um, they they they're kind of they're kind of still thinking that there's going to be a return to some kind of uh, world where they would be working together with Russia on various issues. So I, I, I'm not I'm not so sure that um, I mean there certainly is a call for the West to return to its policies of containment that it undertook in the Cold War. Um, but, you know, if this was the, if this was a different Republican party, if this was a different Democratic party, that would probably be the case. But um, a, a robust containment of Russia would require a stronger, I think, uh, response. It would require no more dithering to supporting Ukraine. And it would be it would require also <clears throat> the coming out openly and saying um, to the publics in the Western Western democracies, we have a situation here where we are de facto at war with an alliance of countries that want to destroy us, and therefore we need to um, react in a more robust way. I'm not sure that many of these countries, particularly the Biden administration has been willing to do that. Um, in, in some ways, the Republicans have been more honest and they've said, um, they've asked Biden to outline a strategy. What is your strategy? Is it to contain Russia? Is it to uh, defeat Russia? Uh, what, what do you want to see with Russia after this war ends? And um, they're right to ask the question because they say the two options are either to tell the Ukrainians to go and talk to the Russians for some kind of deal, land for peace, whatever, um, or to give the Ukrainians everything that they need to militarily defeat Russia. Because this middle ground that you're pursuing um, doesn't get you anywhere. Um, and so um, I think that I think that what happened in Israel, the terrorist attacks, is is leading to a begrudging movement towards a, a stronger, more robust uh, policy against Russia. But it's literally they've sometimes been dragged to that policy. They're not doing it, whole, you know, because they want to. Partly the reason for that is um, the Israeli leaders, like Prime Minister Netanyahu, 
um, got Putin also completely wrong. Um, Netanyahu has been in bed with Putin for years. I mean, if you look at on the internet, you can find posters from Israeli elections where Netanyahu is shaking hands with Putin, and that's his election poster. Um, as a right-wing populist nationalist, you know he's 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 tried to align himself with Putin, Orban in Hungary, and Trump in the U.S. Um, and and he's refused to support Ukraine, even though you know we have a, Ukraine has a Jewish president whose family suffered in the Holocaust. Netanyahu refused to support that and refused to see the writing on the wall that if Iran has got into bed with Russia. That's going to event inevitably, sooner or later, backfire on you. So this this isn't just a, um, a, a terrible intelligence failure, going, which is even worse than the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Um, it's, it's far something far deeper that um, that Netanyahu was was like Prigozhin, too foolish in uh, believing Putin's words. Mm believing that he had some kind of personal rap rapport with Putin. And, 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 it, and what we've seen, that, that's not the case. Russia's gone wholeheartedly in support of, of Hamas now. Um, and, and why are you that surprised? I mean, who, it was Russia um, that helped, you know, the brutal regime, in, uh, Assad regime in Syria to, to half a million uh, Muslims. Um, half a million Syrians. And so, Palestinians, uh, of course. I mean, uh, Assad, with the assistance of Russia, has been massacring Palestinians for the last uh, few years in vast quantities. Well, this is why I think that a lot of the protests that we see in, in supposedly in support of Palestine in, in the West are actually often camouflaged anti-Semitic attacks on Israel because where, where were those same protesters um, protesting against this massacre of Muslims in, in Syria. Where were those protesters protesting against China's imprisonment of one million Muslims? I mean, you know, complete silence on that. The Chinese and the Russians have killed far more Muslims and tortured far more Muslims in Chechnya, Syria, and Xinjiang in China than, than the Americans or Israelis have ever done. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, before, I know because we're running out of time, and I always try to end these things on focusing on Ukraine because Moscow uh, tends to uh, suck up the oxygen in any debate where, where it's involved. Let's turn to Ukrainian victory because also in the report you wrote, and we will put a link to that in, in the description of this video, you have wrote very compellingly about what the foundations of Ukrainian victory are like. So to end, could you just run us through what those are? Well, the, on the domestic level, this has to be liberation of all Ukrainian territories. Um, what And one reason for this, why this has to include Crimea, is that in the period between 2014 and 2021, Western governments told Petro Poroshenko, then the Ukrainian president, forget Crimea, it's lost, it's lost forever. Um, and hence, Crimea was not included in the Minsk agreements, which were negotiated in 2014-2015. Um, Zelensky, ironically, because he was far less radical than Poroshenko, Zelensky said, no, that was wrong. 
Um, and so Zelensky has been very instrumental uh, in bringing Crimea back onto the table, as it were, and, um, and, and, and certainly demilitarizing Crimea um, with, the, with Russia being forced to move most of the Black Sea fleet from Sevastopol to Novorossiysk. So Crimea has to be included, and that's a product of, um, of uh, what happened in 2014. Crimea, just by virtue of its geography, is, is this kind of arrow point, pointing up into southern Ukraine. If Russia controls Crimea, it's always going to be a threat to southern Ukraine and to Ukrainian shipping and trade. And, and therefore, to get over that, um, Crimea has to be um, brought back into the Ukrainian fold. And the first stages of that, uh, which have been very successful, have been its demilitarization, being making the Russian military finding it very difficult to operate inside Crimea. The second, of course, is the liberation of Southeast Ukraine, not only from the viewpoint of territorial integrity of the country, um, but also because of the suffering of the population there. Um, the, 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 the mass kidnapping of children, the torture that's taken place of Ukrainians, the attempt to destroy Ukrainian national identity, including the burning of books at libraries, the, the bringing in of the Russians, Russian school curriculum into those occupied areas. And let's not forget, Russian school curriculum praises Joseph Stalin. Um, Russian school textbooks praise Joseph Stalin and ignore his, 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 his mass crimes against the population. So that would be on the more military uh, territorial side. I think on the on the geopolitical side, um, we have to be more open in saying that uh, Russian leaders and Russian journalists who are fanning, um, I, I, I collect um, clips from Russian TV and on a daily basis, they promote genocidal discourse and rhetoric. So we cannot separate the Russian media space from Russian leaders who are promoting this genocidal rhetoric, just as we couldn't in Nazi Germany with Goebbels. War crimes trials have to be um, have to be put up very firmly on the agenda. Ukrainians will be demanding justice. Um, and I think that we could even go as far as to say that Ukrainian intelligence services will be following in the footsteps of the Israelis in going after Russians long after the war, um, Russians who have committed crimes long after the war has ended. Um, finally, I would say um, we need to think how to prevent a round two of this kind of crisis, which has affected the entire world. And let's assume Russia's militarily defeated, Ukraine wins, the West goes, wow, great. Um, Russia then rebuilds up its army. That will take five years plus, maybe 10 years, but minimum five years. And then we have round two. Russia invades again. And let's not underestimate the obsession with Ukraine and subjugating Ukraine that you have amongst Russian nationalists in Moscow. To prevent a round two, the only way you can do that, and literally the only one bringing Ukraine to NATO. Um, because 
How do you stop Russian temptation to to do a round two again? Um, and that is is bring Ukraine in. Um, you have to close up this gray zone of insecurity between NATO on the one hand and the Russian-controlled Eurasia on the other. Ukraine was in that in that gray zone of insecurity, um, and hence. I think why so many countries in NATO support Ukrainian membership, because they understand that question. They understand that we don't want a second round um, and Ukraine's earned a place in NATO. So I think that has to be part of the negotiations. Of course, <coughs> excuse me, of course, usually what happens, you get into NATO, it's easier, then EU comes, EU membership comes uh, later. Um, Ukraine's will be thanking the the British for vacating the seat with the EU um, because they can maybe take that seat in the EU. But um, but certainly for me, of course, I support Ukraine joining the EU. But for me, the key is to get Ukraine to win, Russia to be militarily defeated. Then what happens inside Russia is 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 up to the Russians. Um, hopefully it'll go in the in a, in a, in a direction of more um moderates and reformers coming to power but in the case of ukraine get ukraine inside uh, nato prevent a second round ever happening then you will have stability on the european continent because there's simply no way that russia under anybody in moscow russia would never attack a ukraine if it was a member of nato um and um and so i think all of those together have to be part of our um, of our containment policy, of our policy towards Russia. Uh, I'm not sure that I've seen any Western leader, even those amongst the hawks, actually come out with that kind of package of, of policies and say, this is what our policy should be. Um, I think they're, they're still probably waiting and sitting on the fence, waiting to see how, how well the, the offensive goes. Well, Taras, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And uh, it is early in the morning. I know this video is going to go out at a different time of day, but it is very early. So I'm very appreciative of you uh, for doing this. And thank you also for your absolute clarity on these extremely important issues and cutting through a lot of the fluff and nonsense uh, to get to what's really important. Taras, thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me and uh, looking forward to talking again this won't, sadly, this war will not go away very soon.